The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 232. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you want to find all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And those that do enroll do get a free course when you do it. So, 10 Myths of American History. So, you want to enroll for free. And then you want to get the free course. And then after you get that, I give you a little goodie so that you can purchase one of my six courses for a discount. So it's a win-win situation. I've got new courses coming out this year. You're going to want to be in on the enrolled list because those who are enrolled do get the best deals on forthcoming courses as well. So go out to mclanahanacademy.com. It's a great website. I've got six courses there right now. More coming. And uh, these next few courses are going to be pretty awesome. So you're going to want them. Also, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks or whatever you got my way. Help keep the lights on if you're watching the podcast. Help keep the podcast going. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to learntruehistory.com. Learntruehistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where, of course, I teach. As well, it's a great website. I also teach with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Burser, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a lot of great professors, a lot of bang for your buck. It's not just history, it's economics, philosophy. you got a lot of stuff there. So it's a different kind of, of uh, educational website from McClanahan Academy. But it's also a, <clears throat> a great value and a great website. So you want to go out and get that. And finally, you can get all your Brian McClanahan Show logo apparel by going to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Shop. Click on that. Take you right out to my store. You can buy all kinds of cool stuff. So... Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo gear. All right, all that said, let's talk about the topic for the day, which is the Second Amendment. Now, um, there was an op-ed published in The Atlantic by John Paul Stevens, who, of course, was on the Supreme Court, Justice John Paul Stevens. And it's about the U.S. v. Heller decision that he was a part of while he was on the bench. And this is an interesting op-ed because... He calls it the worst decision of my tenure. So I'm going to read some of this. And this is, I've already discussed the Second Amendment. And I think the more egregious decision is the, um, in terms of originalism and incorporation. Now, I mean, l- l- let, me, let me just say this. The, the, it's an egregious decision because what happened is incorporation. And that would be the McDonald decision, McDonald v. Chicago. But this decision is actually the Heller decision is actually the correct decision. The McDonald v. Chicago decision is actually an incorrect decision based on original intent or, I should say, incorporation. And I say that because the Bill of Rights were never intended to be incorporated against the states. This was made clear over and over again. The 14th Amendment didn't change that. Raoul Berger has made that expressly clear in government by judiciary. 
The 14th Amendment did not incorporate the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights were never intended to be applied to the, against the states. But, of course, that is what's happened. I mean, John Marshall made this clear in Barron v. Baltimore. If you take my American Constitutions course, I get into this in quite a bit of detail. I go over the 14th Amendment, the original intent of the amendment, and what it was supposed to do. It wasn't supposed to incorporate the Bill of Rights. So the McDonald decision is an awful decision because it struck down the ability of the states or local governments to regulate firearms as the people in the political communities of those states saw fit. But that doesn't involve the general government. This is where the Heller decision is actually the correct decision. You see, because Stevens is actually reading this incorrectly, particularly the history. And he says, well, I had one of my law clerks go, I'm going to read the, I'm going to read the piece because he, he makes some statements that are just not very accurate when you look at the original intent of the amendment. And then I'll, I'll go over parts of my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution where I discuss this in a couple of paragraphs. So um, I, this is an important distinction to make. The general government, I will say this from the beginning, the general government, as I've said in a previous episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, the general government has no authority to do anything but arm the militia. It cannot disarm the militia. It can prescribe the type of firearm that you have to have, right? The, type, the amount of powder or ammunition you have to have, but it cannot disarm the militia, and by passing any regulations, that's essentially what you are doing. Now, my position is clear on the states. The states can do those things if they want to. The states can regulate any of that. This is why the McDonald decision is, is terrible, and why everybody who's interested in gun rights, if that's you, should be looking to your state constitution first and foremost. The general government, though, according to the Second Amendment, does not have the ability to regulate, when I say regulate, I mean disarm, the militia. And who is the militia? I'm going to get into that. Okay, so so does, so does Stevens. He gets into it. So let's talk about some of these issues. So I'm going to start, the piece is not that long, but I'm going to read a good part of it. He begins, District of Columbia v. Heller, which recognized an individual right to possess a firearm under the Constitution, is unquestionably the most clearly incoherent decision that the Supreme Court announced during my tenure on the bench. Well, I mean, we could probably get in some others, but I mean, he, picks a, he picks an interesting one. The text of the Second Amendment unambiguously explains its purpose. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. When it was adopted, the country was concerned that the power of Congress to disarm the state militias and create a national standing army pose an intolerable threat to the sovereignty of the several states. So let me, there's interesting, he gives an interesting twist of language here. When it was adopted, the country was concerned, well, it's not the country, it wasn't the country, it was the states, the people of the states, not the country, the people of the states were concerned that the power of Congress to disarm not the state militias, but the people of the state militias. So he says, disarm the state militias. Who was the state militia? That's a very interesting question. I'm going to answer it. He, they were concerned that the people of the state militias would be disarmed, and that, yes, a national standing army would be created in its place, which would run roughshod over the Constitution, of course, the people of the states, and individual liberties, because they had seen firsthand 
this could happen. History had shown them that this was highly possible. So, yes, the the fact is, this is something people were concerned about. The twist of language here is important. The use of language. Stevens is playing fast and loose with words when he writes that. Okay, so that's that's an important distinction to make. Throughout most of American history, there was no federal objection to laws regulating the civilian use of firearms. Well, this is true if the states were doing it. There was no federal objection to state regulations of firearms. On the other hand, there were no federal there were no federal regulations of firearms. You could buy anything you wanted. You could go into your guns and ammo magazine following World War I and purchase a Thompson machine gun, and they'd send it to you mail order. You could go in and buy a howitzer if you wanted to. All of this stuff was available. There were no federal regulations on firearms. The only time you had anything about firearm regulation was that you had to possess a firearm. That's the Militia Acts of the 18th century. So he's correct. Throughout most of American history, there was no federal objection to laws regulating civilian use of firearms. There's also no federal legislation at all. See, this is the key. There was no federal legislation at all. The states could regulate these things any way they wanted to. And the general government recognized that. Well, the states can do that. States can, can say, um, well, you can own a firearm or you can't own a firearm, however the case may. But that's because they regulated the militias. And every able-bodied citizen, as I'll read, was a member of the militia. Okay. When I joined the Supreme Court in 1975, both state and federal judges accepted the court's unanimous decision in the United States v. Miller as having established that the Second Amendment's protection of the right to bear arms was possessed only by members of the militia and applied only to weapons used by the militia. Well, who the heck is that? Well, of course, he's saying it's the National Guard because we had this unconstitutional National Guard created in the early 20th century, the Dick Act. And I get into all this again in my Constitution's course. I, I try to, to touch on all these issues in that course and get into them in great detail. I should say not just touch on them, but get into them in great detail. And I get into the Second Amendment because it's an important political battle in the 21st century. And of course, he says that it's because of the Second Amendment that we have all these awful things that happen. Um, not true. I mean, it's because we have some some other issues going on in America. And I, I love, you know, Tom Woods actually uh, trolls people in, in ways that are really funny sometimes. He, he posted, uh, and if you get his email list, on his email list, he's put this out. There was a group, an Antifa group, that said... Um, you know, they were railing against a masculine, white masculine society, and we have all these school shootings. And it, but the, Tom said, well, if that's the case, why didn't we have dozens and dozens and dozens of school shootings in the 1950s? Well, we didn't. You see, the problem is a loss of personal responsibility, I think, is that. There's also mental illness going on in America now that in ways that we didn't have back in the 50s, a loss of religion. All these things contribute. It's a cultural problem, not a legal problem. Ultimately, we have a cultural problem in America. Now, uh, let's continue here. In that case, the court upheld, and this is the case, United States v. Miller, the court upheld the indictment of a man who possessed a short-barreled shotgun, writing, in the absence of any evidence that the possession or use of a shotgun having a barrel of less than 18 inches in length has some reasonable relationship to the preservation of or efficacy, or I'm sorry, efficiency of a well-regulated militia. We cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. So, well, 
the fact is the United States had no jurisdiction in this case. So this was the general government saying, well, we can find, I mean, we, we can regulate that firearm because it's not, you don't need to use it in weapons of war. Well, um, I mean, any weapon is a weapon of war, right? Any weapon can be, I remember I used to live across the street from a, from a uh, soldier and uh, his favorite weapon was a shotgun. That's what he loved to use. It's a weapon of war, but we're told by Joe Biden, just get a shotgun. It's not a weapon of war. Well, this guy who's in the U.S. military, deployed overseas, uses a shotgun as his primary weapon. So it's a weapon of war, is it not? So then can we not regulate a, a shotgun? Because it's a weapon of war, and it doesn't matter how long the barrel is, it's a shotgun. It's how stupid they get in these, these terms that put them into pretzels, because they just don't work. Then he continues, colonial history contains many examples of firearm regulations in urban areas that impose obstacles to their use for protection of the home. And of course, he brings up all these, well, of course, because these were colonies and they had their local legislature. And of course, this is before, this is before the U.S. Constitution and the Second Amendment. But it was understood that the local communities could do these things. And that was always the case. And the general government had no authority to do otherwise once we had the general government. And he brings up, you know, 1778. Well, of course, that's during the American War for Independence. We didn't have the Articles of Confederation ratified yet. So certainly we had colonial examples of firearm regulation. It was the discharge of firearms and the type of powder that you had to have. But I mean, these were things that were accepted because local communities could do that, right? That, that was always the case. Always the case. He, he continues, Most, if not all, those regulations would violate the Second Amendment as it was construed in the 5-4 decision that Justice Antonin Scalia announced in Heller on June 26, 2008. Um, well, not really, because this only applies to the general government, not to the states. I mean, this particular case only applied to the general government. The general government couldn't regulate these things. And Boston and Philadelphia and New York are not the general government the last time I checked. So no, it, it, it doesn't really affect that. I mean, this is where Stevens is being disingenuous and frankly not that smart. Until Heller, the invalidity, 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 excuse me, if I could speak this morning, of Second Amendment-based objections to firearms regulations had been uncontroversial. The first two federal laws directly restricting the civilian use and possession of firearms, the 1927 Act prohibiting mail delivery of handguns, but not Thompson machine guns, and the 1934 Act prohibiting the possession of sawed-off shotguns and machine guns, so, so we have the Progressive Era, were enacted over several minor Second Amendment objections that were dismissed by the vast majority of legislators participating in the debates. That doesn't mean they were right. I mean, we could say that about it. Well, I mean, the vast majority of legislatures didn't protest uh, this particular thing, so, I mean, it's, it's they're 100% right. No, they're not. Just because the legislatures go out and say, well, this is what it is. That's not necessarily, that doesn't mean that they're right. I mean, if the legislatures came out and said, you know what? Uh, we're going to pass a law that says anybody that buys black shoes is going to be executed. And uh, there's, no, there's uh, very few objections to that. So uh, the law was passed, and there you go. You're, anyone who has those shoes, you're done. Out of the way. So does that make the law right? Does that make it legally correct? No, it doesn't. I mean, this is a stupid, stupid position. 
There's no other way to describe it. It's stupid. I know I like to use that word a lot, but you just have to call out stupidity for what it is. And this is stupidity. Illogical. After reviewing many of the same sources that are discussed at greater length by Scalia and his majority opinion in Heller, the Miller Court unanimously concluded that the Second Amendment did not apply to the possession of a firearm that did not have, quote, some relationship to the preservation or, or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Well, I mean, this is, a, again, they're, they're twisting words here. Um, a shotgun can. A shotgun can. A handgun can. I mean, uh, an officer may only possess a handgun. That's, that might be his only weapon. Could be. And in 1980, in a footnote to an opinion upholding a conviction for the receipt of a firearm, the court effectively affirmed Miller, writing, quote, the Second Amendment guarantees no right to keep and bear a firearm that does not have some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. This is just, this is just the court uh, patting itself on the back. I could use other terms here because that's essentially what it is, but this is the court. Well, look at us. Here we go. So this is ridiculous, right? they just affirming a bad decision with another footnote of a bad decision. It's all that's happening. Now, so well settled was the issue that speaking on the PBS NewsHour in 1991, the retired Chief Justice Warren Burger, oh, the, the model of originalism, Warren Burger, right? This guy is an originalist to the core, right? Describe the National Rifle Association's lobbying support of an expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment in these terms. Quote, one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. I don't know, Berger, we could come up with all kinds of things that you'd done that were fraud. Even if the lobbyists who oppose gun control regulations actually do endorse the dubious position the Second Amendment was intended to limit the federal power to regulate the civilian use of handgun, that Berger incorrectly accused them of fraud, I find it incredible that policymakers in a democratic society have failed to impose more effective regulations on the ownership and use of firearms than they have. So here is the core of it. Even if, even if we, we, the, the lobbyists who oppose gun control actually do endorse the dubious position, even if they do, I think the legislature should pass more gun control because I think this is what's best for society. Not that it's legally proper. Not that, any, I mean, none of that. It's just what he wants in a democratic society. Well, whoop did he do And even if there was some merit to the legal arguments advanced in the Heller case, all could foresee the negative consequences of the decision, which should have provided my colleagues with the justification needed to apply stare decisis to Miller. At a minimum. It should have given them greater pause before announcing such a radical change in a law that would greatly tie the hands of state and national lawmakers endeavoring to find solutions to the gun problem in America. Um, again, you know, the, the, the problem is incorporation because that is an issue. I mean, I would agree with Stevens that the states should be able to regulate these things, but not the general government. Their twin failure. First, the misreading of the intended meaning of the Second Amendment. They didn't misread it. They actually read it properly. Stevens is misreading it. And second, the failure to respect settled precedent. Well, it's bad precedent. 
So just because it's precedent doesn't mean it's good precedent. I mean, we could say that about anything. We could say it was settled precedent that, uh, you know, take your pick of some egregious position that we would find morally repugnant today was settled precedent. Well, it's settled. So we can't do anything about that. Settled precedent. Well, most progressives won't agree with that. I mean, if the, if it was settled precedent, uh, then uh, we should. Then I mean, what happened with uh, with segregation? Right, that was settled precedent. That was settled precedent for decades. But nope, that was overturned. So would Stevens go back and say, well, that was settled precedent? I mean, uh, you know, you had Plessy v. Ferguson. That was settled precedent. It was settled precedent that the 14th Amendment did not incorporate the Bill of Rights. That was settled precedent. But so would, would, would Stevens go back and say, well, I mean, that's settled precedent. We're, we're not going to go back on settled precedent. Basically, he's saying here, settled precedent's only as good as the public political opinions of the judges. He's saying that's, that's, this is what it comes down to. Um, so if the legal part of it doesn't really, I mean, if, if, even if the legal part is rock solid, well, we should go back to settled precedent. Uh, you know, so we, I mean, that, that's fine. Even if, if the law controverts settled precedent, we should just go back to settled precedent. I mean, this is how, he, he, he can't even logically come up with a good argument here. It also represents my greatest disappointment as a member of the court. After the oral arguments and despite the narrow vote at our conference about the case, I continue to think it possible to persuade either Justice Anthony Kennedy or Justice Clarence Thomas to change his vote. During the drafting process, I had frequent conversations with Kennedy as well as occasional discussions with Thomas about historical issues because I thought each of them had an open mind about the case. In those discussions, particularly those with Kennedy, I now realize that I failed to emphasize sufficiently the human aspects of the issue as providing unanswerable support for the stereodasis argument for, for affirmance. So he's saying, look, I mean, uh, the law, no, 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 we got to have a human decision here. I mean, this is all about political opinion. So essentially, we got to legislate from the bench. He's saying that's not what he's doing, but that's a, it, I'm against that. I, we should we should we should fall back on the legislature. But he's legislating from the bench. He's making a decision not based on the law, but right here. It's a human decision we have to make now. So the law doesn't matter. Do we have a rule of law or the rule of men? This would be an important question in Western civilization. If we have a rule of law, then it doesn't matter what John Paul Stevens thinks about the law. If it's not constitutionally correct, then it has to go. Then we have to change the Constitution, right? This is how this whole process works. <clears throat> After all, Kennedy had been one of those three decisive votes that had saved Roe v. Wade from being overruled in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Again, uh, is, is that even the correct Federalist legal position in Roe v. Wade? And we could get into that too. All kinds of stuff here. That's a whole other situation, though, okay, when it comes to incorporation, because Heller does not incorporate. Heller's just a, a look at what the federal government can do in Washington, D.C., because the federal government has jurisdiction over Washington, D.C. Before the argument, I decided this, that Starry Days has provided a correct and sufficient basis for upholding the challenge gun regulation, but I nonetheless asked my especially competent law clerk, clerk uh, Kate Shaw, to make a thorough study of the merits of the argument that an independent review of the historical materials will lead to the same result. I wanted the specific study to help me decide which argument to feature in my dissent, which I planned to complete and circulate before Scalia completed his opinion for the majority. Shaw convinced me that Miller had been correctly decided. Accordingly, I decided to feature both arguments in my dissent, 
which were able to circulate on April 28, 2008, five weeks before Scalia circulated the majority opinion on June 2, 2008. And then he gets into uh, some of the opinions, and I'm not going to read this. But he does take a slap. He says, well, there have been there has been a change in the views of some law professors, but I assume there are also some professors out there who think Congress does not have the authority to authorize a national bank. Well, yeah, they don't. <laughs> or to regulate small arms, small firms engaged in the production of goods for sale in other states. Well, maybe they don't. I mean, we could get into that. Or to enact or graduate an income tax. Well, they don't. I mean, this is this is <laughs> this is true. Uh, but, you know, he's saying, well, essentially the opinions of the judges is really all that matters. The opinions of the legislatures, the Constitution, be damned. I mean, this is what he's saying. In the end, of course, beating Scalia to the punch did not change the result, but I do think it forced him to significantly revise his opinion to respond to the points I raised in my dissent. And though I failed to persuade Kennedy to, to change his vote, I think our talks may have contributed to his insisting on some important changes before signing on to the court's opinion. That's cold comfort. I have written in other contexts that an amendment to the Constitution to overrule Heller is desperately needed to prevent tragedies such as the massacre of 20 grammar school children at Sandy Hook. The thing is, the federal regulation would have mattered little there because Connecticut already had substantial gun control. It's one of the most restrictive gun control states in the United States. The states already were doing this. They were restricting. Heller decision had no impact, no bearing on that particular ruling. This is where, he again, he doesn't connect the dots. It's stupid. Uh, so, I, the the uh, it, it wouldn't matter. If the states regulate these things, it still wouldn't matter. Of course, he brings up the Las Vegas shooting, which there's a lot of questions about that Las Vegas shooting that had never been answered. That just kind of went away. Nobody nobody even talks about that anymore, probably because the idiot that did it would come up as, you know, some pro-Obama guy or something, and uh, that would make it politically impossible to blame right-wingers for the, for the tragedy there. But regardless... Uh, I want to I want to talk about in my founding fathers' guide to the Constitution the few minutes I have left uh, where I wrote about this. So I'm going to read this part to you. Uh, the second and third third amendments of the Constitution were intended to reassure those who feared federal control of the militia and a possible permanent standing army. So I agree with with Stevens on that. As per Article One, Section Eight, Clause Sixteen, the general government has the power to arm the militia of the several states. Opponents of this power argued that if the general government could arm the militia could also refuse to arm them as well, thus leaving the people unable to defend themselves. Both North Carolina and Virginia propose that, quote, the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained in arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense for, of a free state, that standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided. So this is coming from North Carolina and Virginia, that the militia... Is, is composed of the body of the people trained in arms. Now, at that time, virtually every male was trained in arms. So everyone, every male able-bodied citizen was a member of the militia. Unless, I mean, able-bodied citizen, of course, is the key phrase here. But um, you go back into the 18th century, and even slaves were armed. Uh, there's plenty of evidence of this. Uh, for example, during the Yemisee War, in the 18th century, South Carolina was asking Virginia to send armed slaves down to South Carolina to help defend the, the colony against the embassy. So, 
I mean, this is and, and the South Carolina slaves were were fighting to defend the colony against the Yemeni. So we've got situations where even those people were armed. Pennsylvania's proposal read, quote, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and their own state or the United States or for the purpose of killing game and no law shall be passed for disarming the people or any of them unless for crimes committed or real danger of public in- injury from individuals. Um, so uh, this is where he's saying, well, I mean, if they're mentally insane, perhaps we could have some kind of regulation. But uh, if they are a public danger, maybe we can have some regulation here. But the, the point of the amendment and their idea was for defense of themselves and their own state or the United States or for killing game hunting. Mellington Smith offered the following at the New York Ratifying Convention. Quote, that the general government's powers to organize, arm, and discipline militia should not be construed to extend further than to prescribe the mode of arming and disciplining the same. So all they can say is, well, this is what we can do. You can't do anything else. We can prescribe the mode of arming and disciplining the same. The mode, meaning how we're going to do it, not what you can and cannot have. Maryland did not propose an amendment that resembled the second, but it did provide a definition of the militia as all men able to bear arms. As such, Maryland wanted the militia to be a subject to martial law only in time of war, invasion, or rebellion. George Mason said in the Virginia Ratifying Convention that the militia consists now of the whole people, except a few public officers. Hence, the militia was everyone, composed of the body of the people trained in arms, not the modern National Guard. It was designed to render a standing army unnecessary, and to do so, every man had to be armed for the defense of themselves and their own state or the United States, as Pennsylvania contended. When the amendment was up for debate in the House in 1789, no one questions its intent. In fact, Elbridge Gerry made his understanding of the amendment quite clear. Quote, What, sir, is the use of a militia? It is to prevent the establishment of a standing army, the bane of liberty. Whenever government mean to invade the rights and liberties of the people, they always attempt to destroy the militia in order to raise an army upon their ruins. The only significant disagreement that took place over the Second Amendment was whether there should be a conscientious objector clause to allow those with religious scruples to avoid bearing arms. The clause is ultimately rejected, making all men eligible for service in the militia unless otherwise regulated by state law. So there you go. Yes, some states regulated firearms. They could do that because the Second Amendment did not apply to the states. But it was clear that the founding generation thought that the amendment did not allow the general government to do anything other than to prescribe the firearms, which is the militia acts that we got in the 18th century. You got to have this weapon. You got to have so much powder. You got to have so much ammunition. These are the things they could do, but they couldn't disarm anyone. We had no federal firearm regulations until the 20th century. And you can say, well, the founding generation didn't have machine guns and tanks and bombs and all these other kinds of things. Well, this is true, they didn't, but they had, I mean, any weapon can be a weapon of war, as I already said. Any, anything can be used as a weapon of war. A sword can be used as a weapon of war, right? I mean, any weapon, it can do harm to people. And this is where we have to be very careful. And look, if the state of, and I've said, the state of California wants to regulate firearms, they should do so. Connecticut should do so. All these states should do so if that's what the political community wants. I know that's not a popular opinion, but it's but this is where you have state constitutions that are supposed to deal with these things too. So, there's my position on John Paul Stevens, a very stupid op-ed, but one that had to be addressed because he just gets so many things wrong in it uh, that it just had to be. Now, of course, Stevens is 99 years old, so he's an old man. Um, but regardless, 
Uh, it's not a very wise op-ed, and it, it flies in the face of the historical record. So, that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.